Welcome to Millennium Live, a digital diary podcast. We sit down with the top C-suite executives and talk all things digital transformation. I am very excited to announce our opening keynote panel. We have Clarence Lee, who's the assistant professor at the SC Johnson School of Business at Cornell University. And he will be moderating this panel. The panelists are joined from John Wiley and Sons, Sterling National Bank and Ellisor. So with that being said, I will hand it right over to Clarence. Right. Well, thank you, Katie. And hi, everybody. I'm excited about today's panel on machine learning versus human intuition. And, uh, you know, my own area of research and teaching involves um, applying machine learning to areas of digital marketing, product management, as well as brand management. So today I'm joined by three digital experts and executives from three different industries. We have Sherry, Kim, and Matthew on, on the panel with us. And so before we dive in, let's just start it with a round of introductions. Sherry, would you like to take the lead? Yes, I'm happy to. Thanks, Clarence. And welcome, everyone. Excited to be here. As Katie mentioned, my name is Sherry Hofer, and I am the Senior Vice President of Marketing for John Wiley & Sons, which is a publisher that is moving in rapidly into the digital age, which has been uh, accelerated over the last seven months with COVID. Fantastic. So next we have Kim and then Matthew. Hi, I'm Kim Shuey. Um, I'm Senior Vice President of Digital uh, for Essilor Luxottica. I have been with Essilor for 15 years uh, in various marketing roles, um, but the last two and a half really focused in digital um, and looking forward to kind of sharing more about the optical industry and, and how we think about um, AI and, and decisions around uh, campaigns. Hey, so I'm, uh, I'm Matthew Smith. Pleasure to, uh, to be here on the panel with everyone. Uh, Actually, prior to a couple months ago, I was uh, for Sterling National Bank, I was our chief marketing officer and also our head of product. And uh, coming into the panel now, I'm actually our head of uh, direct banking, uh, which is a, a division that we formed as part of Sterling, where we focus on direct to consumer, direct to uh, business uh, banking channels, uh, as well as banking as a service partnerships uh, with financial technology companies. So um, happy to be here and, and uh have a lot, uh, a lot to say on the topic, so I'm excited. Fantastic. It's good to see that we have industries that are, you know, B2B focused, B2C focused, and some that are having both and potentially switching, you know, on both sides. And so, you know, we heard a lot about the responses to COVID over the talks yesterday. We've got strategies, we have philosophies, and I really resonated with Gene's call, you know, to turn this crisis into an opportunity. And he had this challenge uh, to all of us, not to just, not to just justify, but rather to amplify. So when I look around the digital marketing landscape nowadays, um, a lot of it, um, the effort, instead of focusing on awareness and top of the funnel, instead now, because of data, we're able to focus on performance and towards that incrementality at the bottom of the funnel. So I want to get a sense from you guys. Uh, tell us some best practices of successful marketing campaigns that you're seeing right now. And we can go from the same order from before. Sure. Clarence, I'm happy to jump in. I think a couple framing comments just for everyone that may be helpful is, you know, for us at, at, at John Wiley and Sons, as I mentioned that we were a publisher, but we're also, we consider ourselves more of someone who helps clear the way for seekers of knowledge. Mm -hmm. So depending on where you are in your career, if you're a young student who's trying to find some sort of higher education to get into or some additional career paths to expand your learning all the way through if you're in school to if you are a, a senior level accountant or someone who is trying to get additional certifications to help further their career. 
So for us, it is really about focus. And what we found to Clarence's point that we were doing a lot of was spending a significant amount of time as we were making the digital transition, really trying to hit every single, hit everybody no matter where they were. So we were really kind of spreading our teams. Um, I always say like peanut butter across bread very thinly, but we weren't digging in deep. And what happened with us over the last seven months was the transition that we were already in had to accelerate because of the fact that suddenly the need for resources, that access to knowledge, our real true brand promise of clearing the way became really, really important. So we needed to get to people where they were and provide them with the resources they need to further their education and, and or whatever stage of the learning journey they were in. So we put in a lot of different systems and a lot of different ways to test on how to do that effectively. And it was about focus. So instead of really having everybody at the top of the funnel trying to bring people in the door, we started having one team focus on our product marketing organization, really focused on who we were trying to get to, what our target audience was, where they were, and how we can address them. We then brought in our field and our demand teams to really hone that type of development or that type of engagement. And then we started tracking, like everybody does, really how people were engaging and why, but looking at those lower stages of the funnel and really figuring out how we needed to push people to get them to transact and then change the way we talked to them. So we were a bit um, inside out. And what this forced us to do is really look at the market and see what do you need and how do you want it to deliver it, how you want us to deliver it to you. And we had to, to change pretty rapidly. So our MarTech stack went in undergone, went, we've gone from a really, really wide, vast stack into a very focused MarTech stack to help us deliver on that promise to our customers and really adjust the way we behave as an organization to make sure that we are doing what we are serving their needs appropriately. So we brought in, we're just finishing a new DMP. We brought in, um, we consolidated all of our like webinar platforms. So we went from having 900 webinars a year or 900 events to a year to having you know, close to a couple hundred really focused webinars and then understanding how we take that information and those people at those webinars to further turn them um, into customers. So that's a lot, but hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I, I resonate with what you're saying about the whole inside out as well as meeting the consumers where they are. Now, I, I see that as well from uh, our side in terms of education industry on the teaching the student side itself. One of the things that as our students are you know, doing the virtual internships as they're going out to the different um, companies and the trends that they're seeing. It's interesting how one of the first things that we see when the COVID hit was that everybody stays at home. And so what you saw was that you got the Netflixes, the uh, Amazon Primes of the world, you know, the user activity just skyrocketed. Yeah, and it's because everybody's on their couch. And so um, it's interesting as that evolved, you know, people like myself, like we dive to the entertainment first, but then after that, you know, our, our brains, you know, we're like, hey, we're hungry to learn. We're hungry for content. And what was interesting to, is to see other companies, such as educational companies, and Cornell, eCornell has one of them, where we start hosting talks. And I, and I see in my alumni organization also, they have a bunch of talks kind of like this, where they can meet the consumers uh, on the couch. But then once their switch of wanting to learn gets switched on, you know, they, the, the user engagement of, of, of the educational platform goes up as well, right? And so it was interesting to see that, that format. And it just, um, I'm excited to see what kind of opportunity that comes up too. Because, you know, I, another thing I'm hearing right now is 
Zoom calls, it gets really tiring <laughs> for my students, right? And so I can imagine a new generation of startups coming out to really try to think about, hey, today, are we using the old medium of just video calls, um, but then not really meeting consumers the full way to really uh, rethink, rethink how this, could, uh, this experience could be. But uh, that's fascinating. So also, Kim, um, you know, what, what about some of the things that you're seeing um, in the, uh, the eye care industry and the, and the healthcare industry? Um, uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So w- what's interesting, I, I can relate a lot to what Sherry was talking about, because I, I think it is important to figure out what you want your focus to be in your customer or your consumer's journey. And so in healthcare, there is a lot of movement towards um, trying to connect with patients online, um, trying to give reviews, trying to provide the typical digital type support that you would for like a product or a brand, um, but really doing that for an experience. And so we think a lot about what the digital experience is for the patients that, and and again, Essilor serves um, eye care professionals, We sell eyeglasses, eyeglass lenses to them, um, and then they turn around and obviously do eye exams and sell to patients. Um, And thinking about, well, what role does marketing play in that kind of dynamic and in healthcare? Um, And really where we've focused very, very closely um, came out of some research um, within the last year uh, that, that explained that consumers really, their moment of making a decision in in the eyeglass business uh, is a lot around the eye exam. And so if you can focus your, your consumer or your customer on when are they making a decision, um, back in the day when I worked at P&G, you know, we always talked about the moment of truth. So is that moment that they're most likely to actually pay attention to the message that you have? Um, and so in our case, and what my team is working on is how do we bring uh, general education and information and unbranded content and use that to draw consumers into this funnel um, and really into this patient journey. Um, Because we know that not every consumer that should be getting an eye exam is getting an eye exam and probably they're not realizing some of the benefits and and health-wise that there are 4,000 diseases that can actually be determined um, very early if uh, a doctor looks in your eyes. Uh, And um, so diabetes and um, blood pressure issues. There's there's a number of things that um, can actually be seen because of the veins and the eyes are so easy for a doctor to kind of decipher and, and look at. Um, so that eye exam, getting consumers to engage in that moment has really become the focus. And so if they are searching for topics related to healthcare, even if they're not vision topics, there's a way to kind of tie into them. Uh, But what I would encourage for everybody who's watching to think about what is that moment of truth uh, for your customer and how can you kind of rally all of your focus and your energy around maximizing that. Um, And so practically what that looks like for us is across all the world and and especially a heavy focus in the U.S., um, we are focused on and my team's focused on um, having the right content to attract consumers Um, pulling them in to actually find a doctor locator, um, understanding that they may not decide to do that the first time, but then prospecting or retargeting that audience uh, over the next, you know, X number of days, however many days you have based on the browser, um, and then kind of pulling them back into that journey. And, um, you know, we're, we're a low engagement category. Eyeglass lenses aren't 
super sexy. Um, but we've now merged with Lexotica and Lexotica are frames. So that's Oakley and Ray-Ban um, and even some retail. So we, we now have an opportunity to, I think, think a little bit more from a full consumer experience, not just getting to the eye exam, realizing they need a prescription, but then making product choices and, and selections. And how can we create that whole ecosystem digitally so that not only do we have better data and better understanding of consumers' behaviors, um, but how do we also use that digital interaction to support the consumer or the patient in, in their either healthcare journey or their purchase journey um, in our category? I love that. Kim, as I'm, I'm listening to you, um, Sherry's theme of focus coming to hand. And I, I love your discussion about the, the moment of the, the key moments. Yeah, using that as a focusing mechanism to think about how do you organize your strategy. And I think, I think that that focusing effort on the strategy side, on the human side, what we decide what to focus on, I think that readily translates into the data strategy as well. So one of the common things that I see uh, when I consult with companies about how to apply AI is that, well, one of the first steps you need to do is actually gather the right data together. But then the next question is, well, how do you gather the data? You know, and so, but then a lot of times if you leave that up to the engineers like myself, like I, I used to be an engineer in undergrad, the way we think about it is from the technology-led perspective. And usually we try to gather all kinds of data under the sun. And what happens is before you know it, you have a wealth of data that you don't know what to do with. But then if we were to actually come back from the business side and think about, hey, today over the next two quarters, we are going to focus on these three objectives. How might we think about using that and the right data to get the insights from consumers to then focus all our efforts all throughout the pipeline from business to technology, then um, that will help your AI and machine learning efforts a lot um, better than if you just go the en blanche. You know, and it, it's really, you know, it's really the, the new world of marketing now. And at least in our organization, um, we, it's much easier for me to convince management to place a bet in something that can be tracked and measured um, that we can learn from uh, than, you know, these general awareness campaigns or these general brand building campaigns. Um, so we use the word pilot all the time. Um, I heard I heard the word pivot is the year the, the word for 2020, but we don't use pivot as much. We use the word pilot and we're piloting things all the time. And we have very much a test and learn mentality, yeah. which is very different than the, the kind of days gone by where you would plan out your marketing calendar a year in advance and you just kind of trudge through it. There's a lot more of this dynamic, you know, leveraging data, leveraging what we're learning and then kind of making adjustments. Yeah, that point of test and learn. I, I still remember when in my PhD, I had the privilege of going out to Silicon Valley and study a lot of how the early unicorns scale. And what was interesting about them on this test and learn, the requirement of test and learn is that they need to have data both on what you do as well as what are the outcomes that you want to achieve about your users. Yeah, so for them, if you install an app, they can see exactly Kim, when do you log in? When do you not? How much do you spend and all that? So if you think about that as right-hand side of the equation, you can then pair that up with the things you're going to do in A-B tests. You know, how much do we spend on Facebook? How much do we spend on Instagram? How much do we do, you know, ad copy A and B? Which gets to, get to you, Matthew. I think one of the cool things about the financial industry and insurance as well is that you have amazing data about your consumers, right? Like the ones that actually open up check accounts, you can see exactly how much do they spend with you guys? How much do they save with you guys? Do they 
contract? Do they not? Those are some of the key ingredients to be able to calculate customer lifetime value so that if you think about this test and learn that Kim is talking about of CAC, you know, LTV over CAC, for instance, you have all the data in the places that could potentially do that. So I'd love to hear about, you know, um, on that point uh, and also more generally, you know, what are some of the things that you're seeing in your industry that are best yeah. practices now? Yeah, I think so. So just to set the, the table, right, Sterling is, a, is primarily focused on um, commercial lending, right? But, but yeah. so we, we, we tend to skew most of our, our advertising in support of deposits that we need in order to help with the lending side of the business, right? Which is a little bit different than um, that of like a Capital One or a city because they tend to focus a little bit more on holistic relationships, whereas we're looking at relationships in the form of deposit accounts. We don't necessarily usually have issues with lending. If you're a mid-sized bank, most of the time you're looking for ways to fund the loans, right, that you want to kind of try and put out, right? So so we have a pretty diverse portfolio of um, deposits, right? And there's a mix of consumer and business deposits. And to your point, you know, by way of background, I actually um, am much more skewed towards finance, right? I don't have like a traditional marketing background. And so for me as CMO, I do, I, like when I was in that role, and even now when I'm in the digital role, a lot of what we're doing is marketing by math, right? To your point, right? We're looking at the data and letting that dictate based on a test and learn strategy, what's the best ways for us to capitalize and repeat performance, right? And so I think when I first started, we were doing a fairly large amount of uh, direct mail. We were doing a fairly large amount of, um, you know, kind of like generic media, right? I would say like more um, magazine, newspaper advertisements, not a ton in digital, right? We've completely shifted that strategy, right? And and when you think about deposits, deposits are not a point of purchase play, right? Like people don't accidentally open a uh, checking account, right? Like, so you're actively, you know, starting to target individuals via web channels, right? Or via digital channels who are actively looking for your product, right? Which means that my conversion rates are much better, right? My return on investment is much more precise and I'm much more efficient with my marketing, right? So our group, what we tend to do is now, we're looking at ways to kind of connect with individuals across multiple channels that are interested in our products, right? That we know are interested because they're in a place that would suggest that they're open for that. Right. And what we do is, a, a, to, to Kim's point, a consistent test and learn, right? Where, from a geographic standpoint, are we getting the most lift, right? What's the dynamic of that customer? What's the average deposit? What's the average age? What ads are resonating in specific spaces versus whatnot? And so it's a constant, you know, analytical exercise, right? Where we're doing a ton of work um, just trying to understand the clients better. And then that leads to, more cross-sell, upsell opportunities, right, for us, right? So we start to take that data, and to your point, we're understanding the clients that we're resonating with, and then based on activity, we're proactively pushing them other products that we know that they would potentially be interested in based on what we know about that client, right? So that's what we've been, you know, kind of on a journey to kind of focus towards over the last, call it 12 months or so. Got it. That's super helpful to know. You know, I can imagine trying to tie all that data together and be able to connect with multiple individuals. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a Herculean task. And so um, as the environment has changed now, to, um, to Sherry's point about meeting consumers where they are, or, you know, your, the, the SMB businesses where they are, um, curious to see if there's any trends on how your clients are, you know, like, or that you're seeing in general that are focused on the enterprise side and the, although the, the business side, um, are there certain trends that you're seeing right now? 
I mean, I, you know, obviously financial services right now is an interesting spot to be in, right? Because we're, we're in the, in the midst of a, well, hopefully we're coming out of a pandemic, right? But, but during that time, right, it's been very interesting because you have a, a mix of things that can skew your data, right? You think about PPP and what the government funding has been doing that results in an influx of deposits, right? So the question is, how does that cash get spent? You know, what's the difference between that cash and just normal flow of business cash? Like what businesses in your portfolio are actually taking hits? And, and then also excuse your marketing because, you know, you want to be sensitive to the time period for which you're in. So like, it would be hugely insensitive for me to go, hey, give us all your money in a form of a checking account when, you know, you may have just been laid off or you might have just lost your job or whatever. So it's, it's kind of a combination of things, right? And I think to that point, it makes the, the data so much more important, right? Because you have to sort of analyze your book and understand where you're going to potentially have issues that you're going to need to backfill. And then you have to have optionality, right? To be able to go, okay, what plays can we run that are, you know, potentially going to be successful in the midst of what we're dealing with, right? But again, going back to the data, I think, you know, the trending that we've seen has been people hoarding cash, right? Very low... Uh, sensitivity in terms of interest rates because rates are basically nothing at this point, right? So that kind of changes your mix in terms of your strategy as well, right? If you were going out doing rate plays, um, at this point in time, what you're really looking to do is continue to shrink down the, the rates on your deposits while holding those balances, right? You don't want people to, to kind of go out. But as a result of where we're at, people aren't making additional investments. And so it actually gives you an opportunity to kind of do a little bit more test and learn with some strategies because you're not in such a crunch to try and bring in results because most of the deposits are kind of pretty sticky at this point. So that's, that's been a lot of the trend that we've been seeing. That's helpful yeah. to know. Yeah, sure. Do you want to jump I in? Would, I would just add one thing to that, if it's if it's helpful, because our, our in our B two B business, our largest customers are institutions, global institutions, higher education institutions that are are licensing our products for on a subscription, and part of the the way to perceive the value inside of those is for us to make sure that they're using it, and so when when the pandemic hit. Um, you know, China is one of our larger markets and they obviously had the foresight to try to do things. So we spent a lot of time doing B2B to C type marketing, making sure that we were those that were using the products, um, had access and they knew how to do it, but we didn't do anything extensive. And so when the China team came to us in March and said, this is coming your way and here's all the things that we had to shift in what we did to try to make sure that our usage stayed high during this time, because without the usage, the justification for the subscription and the, the value proposition goes down. So we started doing things like training customers on basic you know, tips and tricks on how to use the platforms that we provided, how to find in information better, um, to get to the resources that they needed. And we have, I think this year we have 360 training webinars that we've put together just on training customers on how to use things. So it was kind of an interesting trend for us because some of that we just took as implied, like there's usage on the platform, they know how, they know how to do it, it's great. But then as we got closer and started looking at the data, we realized we have to get them to use it even more this year, because if they're not using it, then that value proposition that we provide to them goes down. So kind of to that B2B side, we had to really shift who we were looking at and how we focused on that. So it's kind of an interesting trend in our business. So in a, in a similar example, right, to, to what you just said, 
you know, you think about financial services, like very similar indeed, right? Like what we started to do was switch over to adoption, right? Like, so how do we get people to adopt um, our digital capabilities, right? That seemingly in the past have been, you know, kind of uh, uh, slow to adopt, right? And so with limited hours in our financial centers, with less access to like, you know, actual in-person services, um, we focused a lot more on trying to understand like what's the adoption rate or what are plays that we can run to get people uh, to, to, to go and get those services and then start to utilize those in a digital sense going forward, right? So, so I think we saw the exact same thing. Yeah, we also had to really sharpen the edges on our value propositions, right? Because they, we had to really figure out what we were doing for customers and, and why it was providing value. So we've been undergoing a fairly significant exercise in that regard as well. Kim, are you seeing some of the same things in your industry right now? How does that play out? Yeah, you know, I, what I was thinking about is just, um, I think we've, we've had a little bit of an over-reliance on audiences coming through Facebook or through, you know, buying these digital media audiences and access to these audiences. And I think what we've realized, and I've, I've talked to some other colleagues who've come to the same conclusion is you really need your own solid sort of data lake or your, your, your own solid sort of data and um, understanding of your customer data. Um, so if you're in marketing these days and you're not close to wherever the data sits and you're not kind of interacting with that data and that the team that maybe analyzes and does data science on that data. Um, I think it's a huge opportunity area. I see this with colleagues, even in different markets that they've had a little bit of a false sense of security that they could retarget audiences through digital marketing. And meanwhile, we're sort of ignoring building their own base, um, their own base of the consumers that they genuinely connect with. Um, and, and capturing either email addresses or ways to kind of do CRM and really talk directly to them. Uh, so at least for us, and I think healthcare, we're a little bit behind a lot of industries. So this is a bit of a catch up, I think, for, for our industry. Um, but it is definitely kind of where, where things are moving now is really knowing and owning our own data of our customers and, and leveraging that kind of in a day-to-day -day basis, not sort of just theory. The other thing that um, I, I think is interesting is we see that various industries, like in eyeglasses, you can buy eyeglasses online. Um, in fact, Essilor Luxottica owns some of those retailers that you can buy online. Um, but we're seeing uh, that when consumers are selecting which channel they shop from, um, they may kind of cross over and research online but if they are shoppers in stores, at least for eye exams and eyeglasses in our category, there's a stickiness for that relationship with that provider. Um, and they are essentially fairly loyal to that, to that system. And so we've, we've tested different things where we've seen, you know, uh, do consumers engage with online purchases of eyewear because they, you know, get an ad by either one of our properties or one of the competitor properties and just there, there are consumers that are open to that and there are consumers that literally will research only, but their purchases are really happening more in traditional channels. Um, and so I think that's also been le interesting learning to watch where consumers, some segments are engaging online, but not purchasing online uh, versus willing and, and interested in going through the entire journey online. That makes a lot of sense. 
You know, I was listening to, to you saying this. Um, I, I like that point about seeing firms now as a, as a, as a current and future trend that they're going to take more ownership on the data part because what you're at the end of the day, you're trying to get more ownership on the insights of the consumers. And to your point, Matthew, um, in times like this, that point of sensitivity, being able to understand exactly you know, where the consumers and the customers are and being able to meet them where they are is where that insights come from. So you can be sensitive to that. And so as we, as we talk about, think about this future trend, but also on this point of about human intuition, whether it's sensitive or not, as well as uh, machine learning, you know, I want to, I want to, I want to double click into that and just um, think about that a little bit more because um, in, in the fields I've seen, um, what's interesting is that oftentimes I get the questions of when should we use AI and machine learning? When should we not? When should the human go in? And what I found helpful is that the humans, we're good at deciding what to focus on and potentially how to do it. And then the data and the AI is great at testing and figuring out whether that's the right thing to do or not. We get the results and then we can do a repeat and loop, right? And so if we use that as a very simple rule and think about you know, the future trends, I find that as I look from field to field and in verticals to verticals, sometimes I see themes like what you're just talking about pop up from certain field to certain fields. And so if we're to look on the machine side, one of the biggest ideas in AI over the last two decades is this idea that the judgment and decisions of a, from a network variety of non-expert algorithms. So imagine lots of small, simple algorithms deciding up or down, do we do this or not? That can actually outperform the monolithic judgment of a single super expert algorithm. That's what led to the deep learning of the last decade. And so I see that on the machine domain side. But then what's interesting also in the last decade, we see that same theme play out in human decision-making in the social sciences where lots and lots of people have eyes to the data and they can make a decision on their own. And as long as you can have a way which you can aggregate their, their judgment together, that's going to beat the judgment of, let's say, a general at the very top, deciding top-down structure of deciding what to do. And so as we think about how this together, I, as I pick into the future, I know many AI researchers now are thinking about, well, how might we incorporate a network wisdom of both worlds, where you have networks of machines as well and data, as well as network of people and humans, and this what they call a human in the loop AI system, right? So that's something I'm seeing on the research side uh, in academia right now, both in marketing as well as in AI. But you know, what are some of the future trends that you are seeing coming down the pipelines in your industries, and how do AI and human intuition play into that? Sherry, you want to start us off? Yeah, I'd love to. So we've got an interesting, so as I mentioned, you know, John Wiley and Sons is a publisher, but I actually came from education technology. So I've been with Wiley now for three years. And one of the, the benefits that we have, and we, one of our businesses, our research business is really driven by, you know, academia submitting all of these amazing research papers to journals that we publish. <clears throat> And in part of doing that trend analysis, what we started to look in is, you know, the characteristics of particular journals and why people were submitting and how the papers were set up and what we could do to drive greater submissions. Because the more submissions that we get, the greater the value of the journal. And then, the, you know, you, you can see where we're going with the model. Yeah, I see. And we had to use AI to help us. There's so much data that we were collecting on all sorts of things that we couldn't actually, we had, I mean, it, just to give you an example in that business, they had 42 different databases that were collecting everything from 
transactional data to submission data to characteristics about users to the people that were submitting. But we couldn't really get to the point of what makes this particular journal unique so that we have to figure out how we market to that particular audience in an effective way. So that kind of goes to the peanut butter spreading. So we did put together, we've got access to a lot of great data scientists. So they did come in and really help us put together some AI models that helped us figure out the high level themes of the data that you were talking about. But then we really needed to do a lot of human intervention to understand what that meant, right? Mm -hmm. Like when we got to the point of saying, you know, this particular journal's characteristics is they have high readership because they, for example, have more um, short editorial or abstracts available. So people come in and they read quickly and then they leave as opposed to another journal, which has really long um, articles that are super scientific and of high quality, but their readership is lower. So we had to use AI to help us do that. It really kind of tipped the iceberg for us, but it didn't get us all the way there. So what we have had to do is to really start to do kind of the piloting slash piece that, that Kim was talking about um, to get us to understand how we can greater get how we can get greater access to the people that we need and deliver the services that they want and bring more more eyeballs to the type of content that we want and so we had to it was really the starter for us with ai the other thing that we did was that we put in a data lake which kind of opened our world to all sorts of data in marketing we were spending, marketers were spending like 45 days trying to put campaigns together, which in this world is not even, I mean, doesn't even make sense. Like when we talk about the speed that things are changing, but the data lake enabled them to put all of the right data pieces together and then to pilot. So not sure if that totally answers your question, but the human intervention side for us was, was pretty relevant because we couldn't, we had to make some, we had to draw inferences from the data that we had in front of us to make decisions and sometimes they were wrong, but sometimes they were right, right? So we did get to that piece of, of doing it. So when we're still in the testing phase, we're, we're not even close to being where we wanna be with this, but we're getting better. Love that, yeah. And as the humans decide, hey, this doesn't make sense and that makes sense, that actually that data could be fed back into the AI algorithm itself for some reinforcement learning. Kim and Matthew. Yeah, I, I would sort of jump in and say, it's we're early in this AI and use of our data as well. We have use cases, and I think it's important for marketers to kind of define what are the use cases with which data would help you make decisions. Um, and it's not an easy, I mean, it's quite analytical. My background is finance as well before I became marketing, so I have more of that kind of data mindset, I guess, but, but I'm definitely no expert. But I think we're early in this journey of figuring out which use cases can most benefit uh, can we leverage data to most benefit our strategy, changing campaigns, et cetera? We are a long way from where we'd love to be is predictive, like using the data to really predict. Can we, can we tell which consumers are ready to, you know, go get eye exams or, and I guess that, that doesn't sound that sophisticated <laughs> because you should know based on their last eye exam, uh, except we have HIPAA compliance. So we as, as marketing can't see when a patient actually had an eye exam. Doctors, offices can do that and figure out they should send you an email to remind you, you know, just like the dentist. 
But from a, you know, lens manufacturing perspective and marketing perspective due to HIPAA, all of that data is kind of separate from what we can leverage. So it's figuring out within the world that we can play in and the data we can see, um, what can we use to then predict, you know, what we should do next or which types of consumers we should be targeting, et cetera. Right now, I'm echoing, I want to echo the fact that, you know, it's not just your companies that are, you know, early in doing all this. I think a lot of us in the research are also trying to figure out what, how do we take, what, what, what is the best way to leverage AI and what is the best way to leverage uh, machine learning? I think the challenge that I'm seeing on our end is that the people that are developing the AI algorithms, these are computer scientists, you know, super, super smart, super well-trained. But what I find is that oftentimes they, their minds are figuring out the math and the algorithms, but they don't have the kind of opportunities that, you know, we as business professors are, um, have access to, you know, privileges to like access to you, you folks, where your minds are actually focusing on on the ground business problems, what's important, what's not important over the years that you guys have honed, you know, in your experience, that's super valuable information. And so I think, I think as a, as a, in general, as a field, if there's a way for us to, for the people who are developing the algorithms to access your, your, your expert knowledge, then that would actually help us to think about, Hey, what are the best practices and the ethics of using AI and humans together so that when you're trying to use that focus to your point, Sherry, about focus and your point about moment of truth, how do you then align that to the business question? That is one of the biggest challenges I see in the coming decade. And I think what's, what's great about conversations like this, for instance, is that we bring those minds together and we can talk about that. And so um, there's a book um, that I was reading over the um, summer that I found was super insightful. It has nothing to do about AI, but rather it's about humans working together. It's called Team of Teams. Um, not sure if you guys heard of it before, but it's by this, uh, by General Stanley McChrystal. And their idea is exactly what you guys were talking about, right? So today you're trying to tackle this incredibly difficult problem. You're trying to get data, align the data scientists together so that right, the right data gets piped in. But then you're aligning your brand managers, digital marketers, and your product managers you know, as different teams and squads together to have access to that data. So there's alignment between the business decisions and also the data. Now, that's a really difficult problem. And he said that they had to do that in the book. Uh, they had to do that in 05 in the Middle East when they're trying to fight the terrorists. It's the same thing. And so his model is about how to think about pushing the decision-making to the people on the ground that have access to the data and then making that decision and then being able to pipe that back. Uh, you know, in a network meshed, you know, collaborative decision-making framework. That was something that was eye-opening for me as I think about the best, latest ideas from AI and also latest ideas from management. Sweet. We have Matthew back. Yeah. So my, my thoughts are, there's a couple things, right? One is we're kind of on our next phase of our marketing transformation, which starts to introduce the concept of AI, right? And I think there's a couple of different ways we're looking at that, right? One is um, what's the, the technology that we need and, and, and perhaps more importantly, what's the plumbing, right? That's gonna enable us to connect all these things together, right? And be able to leverage it for things like execution, insights and understanding, and then uh, repetition in terms of testing and learning, right? And so, you know, I mentioned before, like, you know, we've been kind of rethinking the way that we go to market and how we, you know, use our, our tactics from a marketing perspective. One of the things we've been doing is implementing Marketo as a, as a marketing automation tool, right? Well, now the question is, can we leverage that tool as an execution platform, but then also through the use of APIs that we would develop internally, connect to data sources that would enable us to create, you know, sort of customized content 
that would be uh, distributed to clients based on uh, specific triggers, right? Like um, an action that took place or something that they were interested in or uh, any number of other scenarios, right? Onboarding is a really good example of something like that, right? So, so we're trying to figure out how do we leverage the data, right? And, and leverage technology in order to execute in a much more efficient way, right? But I think the risk with that is you don't want to come off being robotic, right? There's got to be a, a person touched to it, right? And so a lot of what we're talking about is what's the right mix of that, right? Like we're, we're doing a lot in terms of uh, our, our client experience shifting more towards automated responses and, and um, chat bots and all those other things we've been starting to, to kind of branch out. But obviously people want to feel like they're talking with somebody and they're getting their answers, you know, in a good way. And so it's the same thing on the marketing side, right? Like you don't want to make it so that way it's so customized and it's so like robotic that folks are like kind of missing the point. Right. So, so from our standpoint, we're going, what's the best way for us to leverage the data implement the technology, but do it in a way that resonates with the clients. So that way it doesn't feel like that's what we're doing, right? We don't want to lose our pulse and our humanity as it, as it pertains to understanding our clients. But I also think that there's a lot of ways that you could do that, right? So I think back to my example that I was giving you about the, the, the automated responses, right? When you start to introduce personalized messaging, right? That again, leverages the data and what you know about that client and then feeds into a CRM tool, right? That enables like one of our uh, sales representatives or one of our branch managers to, you know, follow that up with a phone call and a personalized touch, right? To, to kind of give more of a, a warm feel to it. I think the infusion of that plus the personalized touch in our single point of contact model is going to be very successful, right? Like, but we're in the process of kind of building that out. And again, it starts with understanding the technology and what APIs you need in order to connect these things together. Absolutely. Well, I've got to say, I've been really enjoying this conversation. I'd love to continue to talk to you guys. You know, let's, let's find a way for us to continue this conversation later on. And I want to encourage those of you guys who are listening. I know we're at time. I don't want to make you guys late for the next thing, but reach out to us on LinkedIn. If you guys are thinking about these same issues um, that Sherry, Matthew, and also Kim talked about, um, reach out. Let's, let's have a conversation, take that online, and then uh, we can go from there. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to check out some of our other episodes exclusively on Digital Diary.